was driving through Murray State's campus last week, I guess it was, and and it hit me, of course, after graduation, that it's a ghost town. You know, there's nobody there, and and uh, you probably have noticed the reduction in traffic and all of the stuff, and it's just amazing. You know, those those students, as we say, they've gone home for the summer. And it made me think of the first time that I arrived on campus in the fall of 1995 and moved into Franklin Hall, room 303. And Franklin Hall is, uh, I tell people I spent two years, I had a two-year tour of duty in Franklin Hall. Not exactly the best place in the world, so we tried to make the best of it. Some of you may have lived in Franklin at some point, you may be familiar with it. I believe it's on the docket to be replaced at some point. And any of those who lived in Franklin say amen to that. But but I remember moving in there and having our little dorm room, and there were four baseball players who shared a suite, two rooms with a bathroom in the middle. And so on this side over here, we decided we would make it into a living room. And so we had two of the oldest, awfulest, nastiest-looking couches you've ever seen in your life, and they were right there. And they each weighed, I think, about 800 pounds, and we carried them up those, you know. But that's where we put those, and we had a television and a refrigerator, and we sort of, that was our hangout room. That's, that was our living room. And, of course, in the middle we had the bathroom. We had the coolest bathroom on campus because the toilet ran all the time. It was self-flushing. And then over here, we, we had our bedroom, and we had two sets of bunk beds, one on either side. And what we did in that room was we, we put aluminum foil and pizza boxes and everything else we could tear apart on the windows to reflect and keep out the sunlight. And we duct taped it all up, and there wasn't an ounce of sunlight that ever came through that window in, in that whole year. And we kept the air conditioner cranked up just as, as cold as it would go. We called it the cave. It's always cold and dark. And you'd go there any time of day, and it's like middle of the night. You could get a nap, and you'd never know what time it was. And so there we were in our little suite trying to make the most of it. I always knew that, you know, during that time, of course, Louisville was home for me, but I thought, well, this is where I live now, and so how am I going to operate? And I always found it amazing how many people, and you've probably have seen this, it seemed to me operated differently away from home than they probably would have if they were at home. And you know what I'm talking about, the choices and decisions and actions that they, that they did. And I think the same is true for us. Because as Christians, you have been taught, you have been told, and you have believed that heaven is your true home. And yet you live here. Many of us have probably bought into the idea... Gotten, gotten caught up in living for the dorm room, if you will, instead of for where really home is. Many of us have lost sight of the fact that heaven is our true home, and we just happen to be living here for a little while. Now today's sermon, I, I hope, is really about helping you to determine where is it that your heart lives right now. Because you physically are still going to live here, provided the Lord gives you breath in your lungs as you live out this day. But where is it that your heart really is? Is it in heaven? Is it focused on heavenly things or just on the dorm room that you're living in now? I'll tell you, my goal this morning with the sermon is not to make us all this week walk out and just stare at the sky waiting for Jesus to return and do nothing else. I'll be honest with you, I think that by and large is useless Christianity. 
It has no purpose. It has no effect on our daily lives. Should we look forward? Absolutely. Should we sing songs about it? Absolutely. But, but should that be the only thing we ever do? No. Why? Because we live in the dorm room. Here we are. What are you going to do? So my, my goal this morning with a sermon, honestly, is, is I hope that in some way that we'll be convicted, that we will repent, and that we will live here as if somewhere else is our home, even though this is where we are now. That's what Paul wanted for the Philippians, as we'll see in the words that he wrote to them. And, and honestly, that's what I want for you, and that's what I want for me. Get there if you can, Philippians chapter 3. Lots of different ways you can do that. If you've got a copy of the Bible in your hands, Philippians is over the New Testament. Short little book, so if you flip quickly, you might miss it. There's also the words there on the outline of your sermon. You'll see the words to the Scripture. You can just look right there. That's fine. Of course, as always, if you want to scan the code with your smartphone or your tablet, that will take you to some online notes and Scripture, and you can follow along there as well. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 17 to 21, closing out chapter 3, and we'll head in next week to chapter 4 in a a series called A Letter from Your Pastor. Just real quick to kind of catch you up. Some of you know this by now, but I'm assuming that you probably need to hear it 10 or 12 or 40 times before you really, really get it. So I'll repeat it for you again, and maybe it's your first time here and you need to know. This, This letter to the Philippians was written by a guy named Paul. We know him historically in Christianity as the Apostle Paul. He was the first and greatest Christian missionary. He went on three different journeys, taking the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, to places it had never been before, to people who had never heard it. And Paul, on his second journey, made it to a city called Philippi, a really important city in Southeast Asia, uh, actually Southeast Europe, Southwest Asia at the time, on a, on a road that was a very important trade route. And so he took the gospel there, found some people uh, that he was able to lead to the Lord. They established a church, and then 10 years later, he wrote a letter to them. Paul, at the time he wrote the letter, was on house arrest, things not going the greatest for him. He doesn't know what his fate will be. Will he be executed? Will he be released? He doesn't know. The Philippians had heard of his ordeal. They had sent him some money. Paul writes to say thanks, tell them how he's doing. And as any good pastor would in this letter to his church, he says, here's some instruction. So this is a letter from their founding pastor. That catches us up. Verse 17, here's what we read. Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. Let me just be honest with you for a second. This, is a, this was a tough sermon for me to study. This is one of those passages of Scripture you just think, will that preach... And I, I see I, Paul kind of shifts gears a little bit from verse 16. And so this is, this is something that is a sort of a, a, a group of verses here that I, I think need to be taught. But, you know, there's some stuff you look at and say, well, that'll preach. You know, that's good right there. I can make sense of that really. This was a tough one for me. I, I, I really struggled. God, what do you want to say? What are you saying? What do we need to hear? And so I, I really hope, and, and, and maybe you just need to take a moment and just say, God, 
what do you want to say to me today? Because I'll be honest with you, I'm not totally sure what God wants to say to each and every one of you. I'm really not. I know how He's spoken to me through this, and I hope to convey some of that. But, but at the same time, I, I really hope you'll take a moment and say, God... What do you want to say? Because I believe this. I believe that any time that, that God's Word is open and it's read, any time God's Word is open and it's preached, that God is speaking. Now you may say that's arrogant. That's not arrogant. That's just simply what the Scripture says. So this morning, God will be speaking. And my prayer for you is that, that regardless of, of what you came with, whether you make sense of this Scripture immediately or not, you just say, Lord, speak to me. What is it that I need to hear? And so I, I hope that that will be our stance. Verse 17, Paul picks up from his thought in the previous 16 verses. Chapter 3 is really cool. Paul talks about, at first, his spiritual resume. We saw that a few weeks ago. He told him how great he used to be. I mean, he was just a great Jewish religious leader. He did all these things, this, 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 and this. He was top-notch. There was nobody who was more religiously fanatical than Paul. And then he says, I met Jesus. (laughs) And I realized just how awful and rotten I really was. He said, I was a big deal till I met Jesus. And then I realized I'm not really that big a deal. In fact, my big deal is really small compared to who he is, his big deal. I'm not a big deal. He is. And so he, he realized that my only goal in life needs just to be to know him more. I mean, this great religious leader who had set all his goals on accomplishing, climbing ladders and so on, says, all that's over. It's all a detriment. I'm throwing it all away. I just want to know Jesus more. And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw that he wrote, you know what? I, I want that, but I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived yet. He wanted the church to know, look, I've got this new goal, this new mindset. Jesus has changed my life, but I'm not totally where he wants me to be yet. So he said, all I'm doing now is just I'm leaving everything in the past and I'm moving forward to where God wants me to be now. And then he told him in verse 15 and 16, he says, anybody who's spiritually mature, that's what you ought to be about too. And just in case they might need somewhere to look to say, who can show us how to do that? Paul writes in verse 17, join in imitating me. And you say, hold on a second. He just said over in verses 12 to 15 and 16, I I haven't arrived yet. And then he tells them, look at me. It's kind of arrogant. I don't know if you know of anybody like that who, who says, I've got the answer. I'm typically very skeptical of anybody who comes to me and says, I got the answer, so you just follow me. We'll be good. Just hop on my back and here we go. I'm a little skeptical of that. It seems arrogant, but Paul's point is not to be arrogant, nor is his point to replace Jesus as their, their primary example. All he knows is they're going to follow somebody. They're going to follow somebody. He wants them to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. He wants them to have a, a tangible example, somebody they can look to, somebody they can study and say, that's what it looks like. And so when he says, imitate me, he's not being arrogant. He understood verses 1 through 16 and simply wants them to get it as well. He wants them to know what life in the dorm room should look like. We're not yet to heaven. We still live in the dorm room. What's that supposed to look like? He says, follow me because I think I'm tracking the right way. And he says, also observe those who live according to that same example. Not just me, he says, there are are others who are helping you to get where you need to be. He reveals something here that I find to be very insightful. When he's he's fast-forwarding a little bit, he says, this is not our home. We're heading toward heaven. That's what we're looking for. That's where we already live. In the meantime, how should you operate? How can you know where your heart is set? How can you know which one you're devoted to? One of the things he gives us, the first part of what we'll talk about this morning, is to identify who you follow. How can you know where it is that your heart is set? 
Am I living for heavenly things? Is my heart really just here in this earthly dorm room? One of the things Paul talks about early on, verses 17 and 18, is who they're going to follow. He says, follow me. Follow other people who are imitating Jesus. Imitation, as you well know, is part of our nature. It's interesting. You know, I I have four young children in my home, and they, they learn, of course, every child does, by imitating. You've seen that. This morning it was so funny because uh, uh, Nancy and, and my, my other three children are out of town. And Hank is, is with me this weekend. And so he had to come early to church this morning, really early to church. And, and so we had, we had forgotten something at home. And so we take off across the parking lot, walking uh, across the street to our home. And, and I, I was just walking with both hands in my pockets. And I looked over and guess what he's doing? Same thing. And I know whoever was holding the door, I think Jerry and some others are holding the door, and they probably thought, you know, we imitate by nature. Paul knew that those folks were going to imitate somebody. He wanted to make sure they had a great, godly, solid example. And he knew that there would be two kinds of people they could follow, those who were tracking toward Jesus and those who weren't. And he just said, look, I'm not perfect. I've not arrived yet, but let me set an example for you. Let me help you get to where you need to be. Parents, you know how that is. You, you try to help your kids. Look, let's, let's do what I do. Some of you say, you know, do what I say, not what I do. But it, the idea is do what I do. He knew that these folks wanted to keep growing spiritually. That's really what they wanted. And in order to do that, they'd need to look at somebody who was already there, who was already growing. He uses the word imitate. That means come to be, come to exist like me. Do what I do. And then observe. He talks about that with the the other folks. Keep your eyes on, pay careful attention to. The truth is, if you're going to grow and improve in anything in life, you've got to look at somebody who's already where you want to be. That's true. Simple. The best way that I can illustrate this is to talk about the only other thing I know besides church, and that's baseball. That's it. I'll illustrate it with baseball. Here's here's how it goes. When I was a kid, I I simply tried to imitate what I thought the best players in the world were doing. And, and, And I tried that. I did different batting stances and how I threw and how I caught and all that stuff. Tried to imitate those who were the best in the world. And, of course, you know, back then, my, my favorite player of all time was Johnny Bench. And so I tried to, to hit like Johnny Bench. didn't work out for me. Um, that's why I'm here. So <laughs> couldn't hit like that guy, so I started to preach, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, and, and I loved Cal Ripken Jr. He was, he was my guy when I was in college. And, you know, and, and, and all through the time, though, I had different coaches who would teach me different things. Primarily, I remember about hitting. And, and so when I began to coach my son, Hank, in his baseball stuff, I thought, I want to make sure that what I'm teaching is the right thing. Novel idea. And so I thought, I want to be sure that what I was taught, if I just tell that to him and he imitates that, that he is actually going to be doing what is right. What do the best players in the world do? And naturally, I thought the best player in the world, not me. So let's look at who the best players are. They are the major league ball players. Now, this is pretty simple so far, but let me tell you one of the things that I remember being taught when I was a kid about hitting, and some of you were probably taught this same thing, is that you need to make sure to make contact with the ball when your arms are extended. Right there is your point. Boy, when you hit it right there, it's going to go somewhere. Now, some of you were taught that. That's one of the things that I was taught. And so when I began to teach and coach, I thought, well... Let me make sure that's right. I've got a couple of pictures for you. One, one is a guy named Yasiel Puig. 
Uh, Austin, if you would, turn down the lights just a little bit so that the contrast is, yeah. Now, Yasiel Puig is one of the best players in all of baseball right now. He's a, a flashy, uh, very, very boisterous kind of guy who plays outfield for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He's an incredible hitter. Now, if you look, he makes contact. This is amazing. His arms are bent. Look at it. His arms are not... Now, this is a great baseball lesson. Y'all are not going to remember anything about the sermon. <laughs> what was he talking about? I'm going to go out and practice that today. Don't pull anything trying to do it, all right? I just warned you up front. But his arms are, are bent. They're not extended. Well, may, maybe it's just a young guy who doesn't know any better. Pull up Albert Pujols. Now, I know that, I mean, his name is mud for many of y'all as Cardinal fans. I get that. But Pujols is one of the greatest hitters of all time. Maybe it's just the young guys. Here's an old guy. His arms are not extended at contact. Look, his back arm is still bent. That was his 500th home run. He got to 500 home runs, not by hitting like this, but by hitting the way he does. So you know what I did? I thought, you know what? What I was taught was wrong. You don't make contact with your arms extended. Imitate that guy. So I tell Hank, we show these pictures. These are pictures he's seen. I said, you see what he's doing? I don't care what your dad says. You do what he's doing. Listen to him. Imitate him. And then we, we talk about pitching. And so I've got, got a picture of, of Cliff Lee, who's a great left-handed pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. This guy has absolute command of the ball. He rarely walks anybody. You ever been to a baseball game and they just keep walking people over? And over? This guy keeps it moving. He throws strike after strike after strike after strike. He's rarely had any kind of issues with injuries and so on. His mechanics are perfect. And so you know what? Show Hank a picture. Let's try to do that. Let's figure out what we've got to do to get you in that position so that you can have results where you don't walk everybody. Do I expect him to be able to throw like Cliff Lee? Well, no. Hank's nine, Cliff Lee's not. But I do expect that maybe if we imitate this guy a little bit, we'll get better at this. And then Hank's favorite position on the field to play is catcher. That's what he likes. He likes getting back there. Ball's always coming. Luke Hale's a catcher as well. Luke gets back. He loves it, man. He's ready to go. So I I say, who's the best catcher in the world? Now, this is where I'm going to make all Cardinal fans happy. Because the best catcher in all of baseball right now is Yadier Molina. You don't know anything about this guy. He is incredible. Got to see him this past week in person. This girl's so great. There's Yadier Molina in spring training. My mother-in-law took this picture and sent it to me. And she said, look at what he's doing. So I show Hank pictures of Yadier Molina. I say, let's figure out what is he doing. Let's do what he's doing. And why do I tell you all that? Well, number one, I like baseball, and it's kind of fun to talk about it. But the idea is, who is it that's doing what we need to be doing, and how can we imitate them? That's Paul's point. He's saying, look, I'm not perfect, but I'm growing spiritually. I'm tracking toward Jesus, and other people are as well, and that's who you need to imitate. Don't look at people who aren't following Jesus. Look at those and only those who are tracking toward where you need to be. Imitate me. That's what he's talking about. Look at the pictures. Look at what I'm doing. And then try to do the things with the same mindset that I'm doing. Paul in verse 18 then gives them why it's so important to follow him. Why is it so important to pay careful attention to all those people who are following the Lord? He gives it in verse 18. He says, I've often told you. And now say again with tears that many, many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Two different kind of people you can follow. Paul says you can follow those who are following Jesus, tracking toward him, or you can follow the people who are enemies of Jesus. Let me tell you this, there is no in-between. There is, there is no such thing as a good person apart from Jesus Christ. There is no such thing. You don't have to take my word for it, read the Bible. There is no such thing. 
You're either following somebody in your life who is leading you closer to Jesus or is leading you further away. That's it. I, I wish there was something in between. I'd give you some kind of happy medium, and this didn't have to be so extreme, but that's just simply the way it is. And Paul tells them there are people out there who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, in his immediate context, he's probably talking most about the people who did not believe that the cross of Jesus Christ was the only and the all-sufficient means for salvation. They thought, well, Jesus is all right, but we're going to do things on our own. We're going to follow all the rules, and we'll become good enough for God to accept us. And if you don't follow all the rules, then God's going to condemn you. That's what they taught. They were enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe in the cross for salvation. We immediately think of enemies of Jesus, and we think, well, all those rotten, nasty people. Those folks are included, certainly. But it's also people who are trying on their own to get to God. You're an enemy of the cross if that's your mindset. Isn't that tough? That's hard to swallow. They say, well, I'm a good person. Really? Are you counting on Jesus alone for salvation? Well, yeah, I don't know about that. Are you completely surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is He your only focus? Is He your only hope for salvation? Well, I mean, that's kind of extreme. If not, you're an enemy of the cross. I wish I could tell you differently, but that's the way it is. Paul says you're going to follow one of these two people. You might as well get on board with following those who are tracking toward Jesus, because if not, you're following those who are enemies of the cross. Paul's getting to the point, of course, as we'll see in just a minute, that this is not our final home. But he understands we've got to make a choice with where it is that we'll set our heart. Are we going to set it on earthly things, on heavenly things rather, or on earthly things? And he begins to talk about who they're following. That gives you an indication of where your heart is. So this morning, evaluate it. Who are you following? Who changes you? Who, who do you adjust your behavior and your thinking and your words to please? I mean, you have those people, don't you? You're around them and you sort of adjust what you're doing because, well, I kind of have to, I guess. Whose opinion matters to you really matters. What they think of you really matters. Well, I don't care what anybody thinks. Yeah, you do. Whose opinion matters? Whose advice are you willing to take? Who would you trade places with in a heartbeat? Odds are you're following those people. Who, let's put it in social media terms, who on Twitter do you retweet all the time? Man, that guy's got it. Well, she's something else. Retweet, retweet. Who is it that if they followed you back on Twitter, I mean, you'd fall over? And you tell the world, i got to follow back. I mean, think about it. Those are the people that we're following. Who is it that you go to when you need to know what to do? You're following somebody. No matter who you are, no matter how old, young, or in between, we're all, I am, you are, we're all following somebody. And you're either following somebody, as Paul says, who's going to lead you closer to Jesus, or in verse 18, who's going to lead you away from Jesus. And you can get an idea of where your heart is on heavenly things or earthly things by who you follow. And like I said, I'm not sure what God needs to speak to you today. But I sure hope that if your eyes are open this morning to say, I'm following all the wrong people, that you will get on your knees, confess and repent and follow Jesus and those who are tracking toward him. There's another way that Paul gets to in verses 19 to 21 to identify where it is that your true home is in your heart. First is to identify who you follow. The second is identify what you chase. I, I really, I think this is, this is very insightful what Paul wrote. 
he says in verse 19 that those who who are following their own agenda, who are following anything but Jesus, he says their end, the result for them, is destruction, lostness, ruin. And that's even the folks that he's talking about who viewed themselves as good religious people. They didn't believe in Jesus alone for salvation. And Paul says, because of that, their end, their, their result is ruin and destruction. And he says they're pursuing, they're chasing all of the wrong things. They're not pursuing Jesus. Here's what he says, their God is their stomach. Now that doesn't mean that they just like to eat. You know, now we're in a Baptist church, so I mean, I've got to be careful here, you know, because, because when we have a, you know, a good fellowship meal, we're going to eat a few times. Especially at that dessert table. I mean, we're going back. Especially at Elm Grove. Are you kidding me? It's good stuff. You can take some home with you. I don't blame you. Yeah, that's right. So we're not talking about just people who like to eat. So don't, don't, don't get that. This is not about gluttony, though that certainly is in the Scripture. That's not. This is about those worldly appetites. Paul uses a metaphor to describe an earthly focus. The, the things that drive those kind of people that are enemies of the cross, he sums it up. He says they just have worldly appetites. Their God, what they serve is their appetites. What you chase, what you're going after. We see in the scripture different summaries of this. We see uh, in, in the New Testament, it's called the lust of the flesh. What is it that, that I can enjoy? And if that's not a God in our world, then nothing is. What is it that I can enjoy? I just want to do whatever's fun, whatever pleases me, whatever, whatever makes me feel a little bit better in this moment, whatever makes me happy. That's what I'm going to do. What can I enjoy? Uh, it goes on to, to describe the, the lust of the eyes. What is it that I can get? I mean, we have people, and I'm sure that if we went around this morning, we all confess, we've got folks absolutely across our world, especially in our country, strapped by debt because of what we thought we wanted and needed in that moment. Isn't that true? I mean, I've been there. What can I get? Oh, I like that. I'm going to get that. I, I'm going to accumulate. I'm going to have and I'm going to show off all that I've got. That's a real temptation. And that same verse goes on to talk about the pride of life, what we can take credit for. I mean, we, we like to thump our chest and kind of look and say, hey, look what I've done. Isn't that true? You know, it's also seen, Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter 1, it's also seen in our selfish ambition, our conceit, putting ourselves before others. We, we see this chasing of these worldly and earthly things, this God of stomach. We see that in our desire for recognition, notice me, for appreciation, appreciate what I'm doing, in our quest for accomplishment and victory and vindication. We make all of those things what we chase. And if you've chased them, trust me, I've been on that chase with you. I totally understand what it's like. He says that's what they pursue. Their God is their stomach. And he says also, verse 19, their glory is in their shame. What they should be ashamed of, they're standing there saying, isn't this great? And in his context, he's talking about people who should be ashamed of the fact they're trying to get to God on their own. And all their efforts are useless. They should be ashamed of their own efforts. And instead, that's what they're taking glory in. We know in our world that we have done this. That what we should as a society, as a world, as a people of God even, should be ashamed of that we celebrate. In the name of tolerance. We celebrate it. What we should be ashamed of, we, we, we glory in it. We flaunt it, we celebrate it. 
Paul summed it up, verse 20. He says, or at the end of verse 19, rather, they are focused on earthly things. That's where their heart is. Just here, just in the dorm room. Just away from home, this is all I'm going to think about. Nothing else. They can't see past it. You only live once, they'll tell you. That's it. Might as well just enjoy it. He says, verse 20, but our citizenship, we're different. He says, our place, our home, our true residence is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As I told you from the outset, you've been taught that before. If you've been in church for any length of time whatsoever, and if you haven't, today's your first day, you're being taught it right now, that as a believer in Jesus Christ, your true home, your ultimate home, your final home is in heaven with the Lord Jesus. The problem is we're not there yet. That's the problem. I mean, it'd be great if you say, well, my, my true home is there. All right, here we go. We're not there yet. So what in the world does Paul want them to do? I mean, just sit around and think about that. I mean, just be mystical. You ever met those mystical kind of Christians? You know, they were described as, you know, they're, they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. You ever heard that? Now, you can also be so earthly minded that you're of no heavenly good. Obviously, that's the truth. But, you know, Paul's not trying to get them just to have their heads in the clouds and, and be out of touch with where they are. As I said before, that's useless Christianity. It's useless. If it does not affect who you are and what you do every day, it's useless. It's not real. It's not. So that's not what Paul's talking about. He's just telling them, look, you are a citizen of heaven. That's the rule that governs you. You are governed by a different set of rules, a different set of goals, a different set of appetites than everybody else. Because your true home is in heaven. You're just living in the dorm room. You're just away from home. But you're still governed by those same rules. When I came to Murray State, I knew. I knew. Yes, I'm away from home. But I tell you who I answer to. And that's the man writing the checks from 9808 Holiday Drive in Louisville, Kentucky, 40272. Mr. Robert Burns. That's who I answered to. Was he there in my dorm room? Nope. But I better have been living as if I'm still in his home, even when I'm away from home. That's the concept. Paul says, you're away from home. You're not there yet, but live like you already are there. Living like heaven is your home, even though you're currently residing in a dorm room. And in verse 21, he just gives the great motivation for all this. And really a very, not really subtle, but a great truth. He says, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. That's our future. It gets better. You realize that? This world is not there. all there is. Some of us have it really good in this world. Some of us don't. But it gets better. That's what we have to look forward to. It doesn't just end. But he says earthly things won't get you there. Listen to this. By the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. All those earthly things don't carry with it the power that Jesus has of life transformation. It's only through Jesus Christ being transformed that you can be made ready for the heavenly things. The truth is, everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody. Even people who don't believe in it. I mean, if you were to ask them, which would you choose? Overwhelming majority of people who are in their right mind would say, well, you know, if there is such a place, I'd rather go there. But earthly things won't get you there. 
It's only, he says, the power that enables Jesus to subject everything to himself. That's the power that will transform us, both now and forever. And so the challenge in, in closing today, that I, that I hope God has spoken to you, I, while you're living away from home, follow people who are chasing Jesus. Imitate them. Get around them. Listen to them. Become like them. Not to make an idol of them, but because God has given you that kind of example to follow. And while you're living away from home, chase the things that matter to those at home. To your Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you this morning just to be open to what God has spoken to you. And so in a minute, I'm going to pray. And I hope that during that time, during that prayer and then following... That, that you will feel the freedom to respond to God in whatever way that you need to. Recognizing that you can keep trying to be a great, great person, but all those earthly things can't transform you. Only Jesus can and get you ready for heaven. Or maybe today you've identified I'm following all the wrong people or I'm chasing all the wrong things. I want to follow people who are chasing Jesus. I want to chase things that matter to my Heavenly Father. We make available after the service some folks who will be standing down here just to pray for you if you need that. You're certainly welcome to get out of your seat and come and just kneel by yourself and say, God, I need to do some business with you. You can kneel at your seat. You can pray by yourself. I don't care how it is. There's no formality that you have to go through. But don't leave here today without responding to what God has said to you, whatever that may be. Let's pray. Lord, our prayer has been that you would speak to us. That you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to receive. So, Lord, we, we need to respond. So in the next few moments, make it clear what that response is. I pray for those who need to turn their lives over to you. Surrender completely. Confess their sin. Repent. And receive your salvation. And I pray today's the day. I pray for those who are following and chasing all the wrong people and things. God, give us boldness today to repent of that sin. And to follow you and the right people. To chase all the things that you care about most. Help us, Lord, in the next few moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.